Amen. Good morning, everybody. I also want to welcome all the guests in the room, whether you are here because you're traveling through town, you came with friends and family, maybe, this, you, maybe you've been going to church for decades, maybe this is your first time in church in years, maybe you're looking for a new church home, we're just glad you're here with us. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream. Uh, live stream provides us with a, an opportunity to minister to people all over this country and all over the world, so I welcome all those who join us today on the internet. Uh, I've been in a series now. We've been in a series for almost six weeks. I've called it Christ and Culture. I, I love the church. I believe in the church. And, and it's hard. I can't ever stand up here and say, like, in the days we live in today, we know there's a lot of chaos around us. And now more than ever, it's important for the church to be rooted in the holiness of God and to understand what the mission of God is. Because I think for 2,000 years, there have been teachers and preachers and pastors who could stand up in front of people and say, today, more than any other day, we're in need to pursue holiness and righteousness. You know what I'm saying? And, and I, I mean, it's like politicians. How many times do you hear politicians say, this is the most important election in our lifetime or in the history of America? I, I will vote for the person who runs a commercial and says, well, you know, if you lined up all the elections ever, this is probably like the 20th most important, all right? Because of being honest, all right? I know today is so important to pursue the holiness of God and the mission of God. And it has been for 2,000 years. And for the church to understand what it means for Christians to engage culture around us, this is a battle that we are in every single day. Of what does it mean for us to live from a place of holiness and righteousness and not abandon what the mission of God is? And what does it mean for us not to fully immerse ourselves in culture where we're just going with the waves of culture, but that we're also living from a place that's rooted in the heart of God? This is a daily battle we're in. So I've been in this series for six weeks. If you've missed some of these, feel free to jump online and check it out and just join in the conversation. And as a church, this is stuff we want to flesh out week in and week out, no matter where we are or what we're doing. Because there are a lot of days where I tune into the news or I see what's going on in the world. And there are times I don't know how to respond or what to say or how to use my voice or when to be silent. There are times when things are going on in the, in the world and, and I just don't know how to, I'm confused. I don't know what to do. But here's what I bank on today is that God is not pacing back and forth in the throne room of heaven wondering how to respond or what to do. That God's not overcome by a spirit of anxiety today because he never saw something coming. That we serve a God who's not, like today he's not calling a special counsel where Jesus and the Holy Spirit and he's going to bring in Michael and Gabriel and angels and maybe some females and male leaders who've gone before us to come sit in a room and to process what cards to play because of what's happening. God is sitting on his throne. And we're going to bank on it today. Because I know this. If the church survived during Emperor Nero, the church is going to survive the 21st century. If the church has survived through Hitler and Stalin, the church will survive no matter whatever regimes or forms of government are, exist throughout the world. If the church has been able to survive Emperor Domitian in the Dark Ages and Middle Ages and through slave trade, the church will survive any president, any reign, any form of persecution, any form of terrorism that ever comes to the church. The church will survive because the church is not in my hands and the church is not in your hands. The church is in God's hands. And Jesus is the one who tells us that not even the powers of hell will overcome his church. Can we say amen? Uh, but, but here's something, especially like for our movement or for people who were taught that there was a time when like God and the Holy Spirit did great things, but then when the apostles died, God stopped acting in the ways God used to act. 
If we've ever bought into this kind of theology or this kind of thinking that, that God's final act or God's next act will be his final act, it leaves people wondering today, with what, is God, what is God doing now? Right? God's next act isn't going to be God's final act. God is <clears throat> he's doing things all over the world today. So what is God doing? And how is God calling his church to act? So I want to take us on a journey today. And let's begin in Genesis chapter 1. Let's begin in the very beginning, and then I want to talk about Father Abraham, and then get to Jesus, because it's always good to get to Jesus, all right? In Genesis chapter 1, here's the first two verses of Scripture. They begin like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was, a for- it was formless and empty. Some of your versions, there was chaos. So right in the beginning of the story of the Bible, there's a void, there's chaos, there's emptiness, So the first thing God does is he creates out of nothing. And whenever I read Genesis 1 and 2, I don't read Genesis 1 and 2 where I'm sitting here trying to process um, old earth versus young earth. And and there are conversations that need to be had about that kind of stuff, all right? When I see Genesis 1 and 2, I'm asking, okay, what does the, the patterns and the nature and the activity of God teach us about what God is still doing right now. And I think in verse 1 and 2, you are, you are, God lets you in on a truth about who God is. And it's an ongoing act of God up until this present time. God still knows what to do with the void. God knows what to do with chaos. God's no, he knows what to do with any form of emptiness. God can still create out of any void that may exist in your life, in your family, in our culture, in our world. God is still doing this. What I love in creation, I know I've taught this before, but if you were to line up day one, two, and three, day one, two, and three, God creates big space. And on day four, five, and six, God fills what God created on day one, two, and three. So it's like God creates space in four, five, and six, days four, five, and six, God fills this. Walter Brueggemann is a scholar uh, who, who first introduced me to this. Walter Brueggemann, that name just sounds like a scholar, right? Like, why do scholars seem to have like these really cool names? Like, you never see like Josh Ross, you never hear that name and think, that's a wise scholar, right? Brueggemann sounds like somebody who's wise, all right? And, and he talks about this. Day one, two, and three, God creates space. Day four, five, and six, God fills that space. So day one, God creates light, so there's light and darkness. Day four, God fills the space he created on day one. So day four, God puts the sun to govern the day and the moon and stars to govern the night. Day two, God separates water from the sky. So there's water and sky. Day five, God fills what God created on day two, where now God puts birds in the air and he puts fish in the sea. On day three, God creates land. And on day six, God fills what he created on day three, that now God puts animals on the land and and humans are created to walk and to govern the land. Isn't it amazing what God does? Because even today, God still is creating space and filling whatever space that he creates. Genesis 1 through Genesis 11 take up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years. And from Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis 2, God creates. Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, it is chaos after chaos. Sin enters the world through Adam and Eve. Then you have murder in Cain and Abel. Then you have the flood where a very specific sin is described in the Bible. The reason God brought the the flood, it wasn't because of pride or egos or sexual immorality. It was violence. Violence caused God to act. 
In Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel where egos and pride and humans begin to try to play God. So from chapter 3 through 11, it's complete chaos. But what you learn in chapter 1 is that God knows how to take chaos and do something with it. So whenever you get to chapter 12, open your Bibles to Genesis 12, you begin to hear about Father Abraham. I don't think you can listen and read about Father Abraham without knowing about what happened in 3 through 11, that there's chaos after chaos, but God is not going to stop acting. So you get to Father Abraham. But whoever wrote the song called Father Abraham, how many of you know this song, right? Father Abraham and many sons, many sons and Father Abraham. Sometimes I listen to, to songs that have been a part of the church tradition for years, and, and, and it's not like I blame the person who wrote Father Abraham. Like, it's a, it can be an annoying song, all right? Can we just be honest? Like, it can hang around in your mind forever. I mean, there's, there's, there's stuff, and it's not like I blame whoever wrote it. It's that I blame whoever heard it and thought, our church has to do that song too, you know? I mean, you got Father Abraham, you got like Booster Booster. How did a tradition of lock-ins ever start? All right? I don't know. But that someone heard these songs and thought, we've got to take on this tradition too. And it's survived for years. I don't know how this happens. I think Abraham's going to ask for one moment in heaven one day and just stand in front of all the people and say, who wrote the song? All right? Is it, who wrote it? I just need a little moment with you, okay? Chapter 12, here's a, chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. If you underline your Bible... I want you to highlight a few things. The Lord said to Abram, go, go from your country. And I want to pause right there because in Matthew chapter 28, when you read the Great Commission and when Jesus commissions the apostles and says, go, I don't think any Jew would have thought, wow, this is the first time God's ever told us to go. Like this has been a part of what God has done for years. God calls his people to go. And God comes to Abram, says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What I want to do today for you is for you to catch a fresh vision of God of what God intended from the very beginning of Scripture, the goals God set, the trajectory of God's plan, how it works. And here in the first three verses, God says, Abram, I need you to go. I'm going to make a nation out of you, and it is going to bless all the nations. So God knows that chaos has ensued all over the world. There's chaos, there's rebellion, there are big egos, and now God is going to call a nation to pursue holiness and righteousness, but it's not just going to be the sake for that nation to live alone as their own nation forever. It's that that nation will live into the vision of God, which is to be a blessing for all people. That's the first three verses of chapter 12. And then verse 4 says this, Abram went. The dude just went. The command of God comes and Abram obeys. Just as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, there are times where I think the Bible throws around ages of people, and there may not be much meaning behind it, but I think most of the time when an age is thrown out there, it's, it's for a reason. This guy's 75 years old, which will let you know. I don't think Abram was sitting there at a point in his life where he's, he's not like an 18-year-old high school grad that's like, what's, the, what's my next adventure? Like, where do I want to go? It's not a 30-year-old who's pursuing a new career or occupation. He's 75. And at the age of 75, God calls and says, hey, I've got something for you. 
that's going to bless the entire world. So for the 75-year-olds in the room today, God's not through with you yet. The commands of God, the mission of God keeps coming to us. And this happens, and I want you to see this. Here's his response, all right? Verse 7, I want you to see this. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So Abram at this point is still on this journey, not even knowing like where the destination is. He's just going. And then it says this, So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. And then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Abram two different times builds altars to the Lord and worships the Lord. Which I think is important for us to know. Like for Abram, it's not that he's like, okay, I'm on this, I'm going to follow God. He told me to go, I'm going. And then when I get to the destination... I'm going to build an altar and have a worship service. It's that while he is going, he knows that God is with him. And he's setting up altars along the way. Having worship services along the way. Praising the God who isn't just the God of the destination, but the God who is fully present in the journey. This need, some of you need to get this today because some of you, you're living in a way where you're like, I'm waiting for that breakthrough from God. I'm waiting for that next moment. And when that happens, when I get to the destination, when I experience full deliberation and deliverance, then I will worship God and invite people to come and join me. The, some of the best, most authentic worship we will ever experience in our entire lives isn't when we arrive to a destination. It's how we encounter God in and through the storms and in and through the valleys. And while we are on the journey, Praising the God who is fully present in the unknown. I spoke at an event a few years ago. A bunch of college students. And the main point of a sermon was that God dwells in the unknown. And it was the main point because I know a bunch of college students, I mean, they're in a place of uncertainty and the unknown. They're not sure, many of them, where they're going to go or what, it's gonna, what the future is going to look like. God dwells in the unknown. A week after I gave this talk, this girl sent me a message and she showed me a picture of her forearm where she had tattooed from her wrist to her elbow, God dwells in the unknown. And I saw it and my first thought was, oh my goodness, I'm going to get a call from a mom or dad in the next few days <laughs> saying, did you tell these kids to go get tattoos of the points of your sermon, you know? But then the other part of me was like, this isn't a bad idea. Maybe we should bring a tattoo artist to Sycamore View every Sunday. And if you like a point, you can go, go, you can go permanent right out there in the hallway, all right? God dwells in the unknown. Worship breaks out. And I want you to flip just a few pages. Genesis 17, here's what happens. So a few years go by. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, and the Lord said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless, and then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And I love this. Look in verse 3. Abram fell face down, laid himself before the Lord, which made me pause as I've been studying and reflecting the last few weeks. Made me pause and thank God for the older people in our lives who never reach a point where they outgrow the need to lay themselves before God. He's 99 years old. 
And Abram's just laying himself before the Lord where his whole posture, his body, everything he has is going before the presence of God. God speaks, Abraham falls face down. And then you get this word from the Lord that says this, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I want you to catch this, man. This guy's 99. And God's told him now for almost 25 years that he's going to be the father of many nations. He's going to be a blessing to many nations. Generations are going to come after him, yet he still doesn't have a child. And God keeps visiting him, telling him the plan of God, telling Abram. And now he's going to change his name, which is this pivotal moment in any Bible story you read. When a name is changed, it's this blessing of God, like a, a commissioning that's coming upon people. We need older people in our churches who aren't afraid to make it known of the journey you've been on and how you're still pursuing God and how you're calling younger people to follow in your footsteps even though you have not always got it right. Abram's 99, laying himself before God and then God forms, states this covenant to him. You're going to be a father of many nations. And then he keeps going. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And the whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. What I want you to see in Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 17 is this. That God is setting out in the life of Abraham. He is setting out what the story of God is. God is painting the target. He's giving them the goals. This is a trajectory of the heart of God. That's going to play out throughout the rest of scripture. God is calling together a nation. To be a blessing to all the nations. And there are way too many times. When our vision of God. Becomes way too small. And we're in need of God to lift us up above the surface to catch a bigger vision of what God is doing and what God wants of his church. The Bible is full of conflict, obstacles, distractions. There are times in the Bible where there are united kingdoms. There are times where there are divided kingdoms. There are times where there are conquered kingdoms. There are times where there are victorious kingdoms. There are times where there are fallen kingdoms. And one thing you see in the Bible, and it's still true today, is that when the focus of God's people becomes too small, it leads to isolation and entitlement. When the focus is inward and only inward, we lose focus on the bigger picture. And God wants the church. God died to launch a church, to be at the front lines of leading efforts to save the world through Jesus. And that if our focus is on protecting ourselves from the world and not engaging the world, how can we be a part of how God's ultimate desire is for the entire world to know the good news of God? Um, and sometimes I'm afraid this is happening, that we are nibbling on Scripture and we pray before a meal and we go to church Yet we are fully immersed and soaking in and drinking from talking heads and news outlets, thinking that we're living in the nucleus of God's will because we nibble on the word of God every once in a while and pray before a meal and show up at church and not giving full allegiance to what it is God wants. I, was, uh, I came in this room on Tuesday, which is 
pretty much a weekly habit I have, and, and I pace and I pray, and a lot of times I come in this room and I just say, God, is there a word or a phrase or a verse you want me praying over the church today? And there are days I don't feel like really any response from God, and that doesn't mean I don't pray. There are plenty of things I can intercede for and give God thanks for, but this week I came in this room and I started in the back corner way over there, and the word that came to me is just almost crystal clear is today you need to focus and you need to pray the word redirect for hearts to be redirected, minds be redirected, passions re- redirected, marriages redirected, families redirected, allegiances redirected. To be redirected for any time we are not focused on God. I think there are times where God looks at me. He's like, Josh, you were caught up in all of this going on over here, but I'm not there. I need you to come where I am. Come and get in on what I'm getting in. And the big vision of God, and God's trying to pull the church up every once in a while to catch a bigger vision of who God is, is to be a part of how God is unleashing restoration and redemption all over the world. Do you know where the word nations last shows up in the Bible? It's in Revelation chapter 22. It's the last chapter of the Bible, last mention of the word nations. And it's this. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree or for the healing of the nations. It's the last word of the word nations, which is a fulfillment of the promise and covenant God gave Abraham and that Jesus came and fully embodied and called the church to live into. One of the big challenges for us as Christians in America is how do we love America and not worship America And one of the biggest challenges for us, too, is to not let our love for a nation keep us from believing in God's great desire to save all nations. So Jesus lives this out. Jesus embodies this. The covenant God gave Abraham, Jesus embodies and gives the church. In the book of John, Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am the light of the world, right? He says, I'm the light of the world. But not only that, in Matthew 5, Jesus says something else. He says, you are the light of the world. So Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then Jesus looks at the church and he's like, man, you all, all, y'all, you are the light of the world. And the way light works is light attracts and light invites. And even the way Jesus talks about Matthew 5 is like it's a city on a hill. And the light of God in the church should be attractive to those who aren't connected to God. But you also know that the way light works is light doesn't just wait for darkness to like come and surrender to light. light. Light travels, light moves, light goes. Sometimes in my life, I come back to what did Jesus say his mission was? And Jesus was very clear sometimes, like, I came for this purpose. And here's two of them. In Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come to seek out and to save, save what is lost. And Jesus also says this, I have come not for the healthy, but for the sick. Which leads me to this question. Is the church supposed to be like a hospital? And I think the answer is yeah. I think there are ways where the church is called to be like a hospital and like a clinic. 
Do you remember the first time you ever had to go to a hospital? I was four years old. It's my granddad's birthday party. And nobody I've ever known likes to eat more than my granddad liked to eat. And it was five minutes before his birthday meal was prepared. And we were about to eat, and I was in the living room playing some baseball in the living room with an uncle and some other relatives. And it was coming toward the end of the game, and even at that age, I was competitive. And I hit the ball, and I rounded first, rounded second, rounded third. It was going to be a close play at home, so I dove head first. But head first, the home plate was the fireplace. Went head first into the fireplace, busted my lip open. So my granddad is now mad at me because we had to postpone the meal so we could go to the hospital. One thing I learned at the age of four, one thing I've learned the countless times I've been in hospitals, is that in a hospital, people are committed, who work there, they're committed to wellness and wholeness, right? You come there, there is a commitment to do everything they can to make you better. In a hospital, there's teamwork. I mean, everyone who works in a hospital is like on the same team, helping people get where they need to go, healed how they need to be healed. But here's something I also realize about hospitals, though. Hospitals are able to take care of people who are able to admit that there's something wrong with them, right? At some point, and sometimes our bodies just do stuff, or we're, we, don't, we don't admit it, things just happen, and we have to go to a hospital because of it, but... People show up at hospitals because something's wrong with them and they have to admit it. And the, but the thing is, like, do people trust hospitals? Because if, if there's a hospital you don't trust, you're probably not going to go to that place, right? Do people who are not connected to the church, they're lost, they've never heard of God, maybe they've left the church, they're going through forms of pain, do they trust that the church is a place where they can come? knowing that they will look out for their healing, that they'll care for them in their brokenness. Because I think there are a lot of people in the world who look at the church and they're like, I, I, that's not a place that would really care for me where I am. So what does it mean for the church to function like a hospital that's trusted by the world? That no matter what brokenness you're going through, we will listen to you, we will pray for you, try to help point you in the ways of Jesus. But if you were to ask me today, is the church always like a hospital? I would have to say no. Because every metaphor breaks down at some point, right? And hospitals, if you think about it, as I'm presenting it to you today, they're kind of passive. That hospitals are there for sick people to come to get well. When's the last time you had a physician just knock on your door, randomly knock on your door, asking if they... Could ask some questions about your life or get to know you a little bit. So the church isn't like a hospital and that we don't just sit still and wait for other people to come to us. We have been given a mission where we are called to go and engage people in the world where they are. So it's both, right? So even today in this worship service, how can we be of service to you? And how is God calling this church to take on the covenant God gave to Abraham and the generations that follow after him and launch 
in a brand new, clear way in Jesus of what it means to be a blessing to the entire world. And it probably begins right where you live and where you work and in your house, in your neighborhood. And through that, I'm asking God to do great things in and through this church this week. Can we bow our heads? Will you open your hands where you are just to receive from God this morning? God, if there are people in this room hurting or broken and they feel they are alone, open a door for them to connect with a friend, to connect with another person, to give them someone to share with so that they will know they're not alone. If there's any way in us, God, that we have become too isolated and too safe, just fill your church today with boldness, with courage, with wisdom to know what it means to navigate this life in a way that honors you, that is rooted in you. And God, I pray in and through this church for great victory in the world, victory over sin, victory over fears, that you will use us this week for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to ask the elders and prayer leaders to go to places today to receive people. We have leaders who are here for you. Anything they can do for you, please go. If you find a leader throughout the back of the room somewhere, they are there just to be with you. It doesn't have to go anywhere else. But if there's something you want to bring in front of this church, we do have leaders who are up front to receive you. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.